So it's customary to introduce um, Irish speakers by introducing them in Irish. So, Gumani Giyev, Tafajarov, Gach Ila, Gach Nev Owen, Eren Majin Shah, on Majin Shah which means uh, good morning and welcome to St. John's Church on this wet and windy morning. Jane last spoke at uh, St. John's three years ago before the parish house uh, renovation, and I know that Jane is delighted to be here. Uh, in this beautiful Togo West parlor this morning. Um, also, thanks to Clark Irving, who is such a relentless and, the, as they say, the, the greatest Rolodex in Washington, who has wonderful speakers all the time, and I know that Jane is honored to be here this morning. So Jane grew up on a farm in County Roscommon in Ireland, uh, where all the best people grow up. Um, and she lives with her partner, Izzy, in Glenmalure in County Wicklow now. Her first collection, um, I'm just going to show these because they're for sale at the back of the room, of course, um, The River, uh, was published by Blood Axe Books in London in 2015, and she spoke from that book the last time she was here. The second collection, When the Tree Falls, was published just in September of this year, so Jane will be reading from that this morning. And All the Way Home is a really interesting book. It's an illustrated sequence of poems um, that were a response to a soldier's letters from the front during World War I. It was published in April 2019 this year in collaboration with the Mary Evans Picture Library in London. So all three books are, are available and uh, Jane will be happy to sign them afterwards and if you have to rush to an 11 o'clock service, you can just leave a little piece to say who you want them dedicated to and we'll leave them for you. So our thanks to uh, Paddy Meskel from Solace Nua who is uh, selling the books for us this morning. Solace Nua is an Irish arts organization that promotes contemporary Irish arts and brings artists, uh, drama, theater and poetry to Washington from Ireland. Uh, Janie and Izzy had a wonderful visit with me to the Bishop Walker School, which um, I always drop into the conversation on Friday. <laughs> and I'm delighted to say that Jane is giving 30% of the proceeds of her sales this morning to Bishop Walker School. So, so without further ado, I'd love, it gives me great joy to introduce my sister Jane. <laughs> Thanks very much, Andrew, and uh, thank you to everybody in St. John's for inviting me back again. It's wonderful to be here again this morning. And I also do want to just another thank you to Solace Nua, Paddy Meskel, who invited me to come to the States for this reading tour. I'm doing a week of readings in uh, all around DC and then going to New York next weekend for readings there. So it's very exciting. Uh, Give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the o'erfraught heart and bids it break. The words of Shakespeare from Hamlet, Act, scene, Act 3, Scene 4. I wrote those words on a yellow post-it and put it above my... Am I too close to this? I'll go back a bit. Now, can people hear me still if I stand here? Okay. And put it above my desk... 15 years ago, when I was beginning to write poetry. They expressed a guiding value for my work. But I also see now that they were a kind of a bridge between my work as a psychotherapist, which I was doing then, and my work now as a poet. We live with the inevitability of loss, and therefore the inevitability of sorrow. 
I believe that we give sorrow words when we read as well as when we write. All poets are primarily readers of poetry, and everybody here is a reader and maybe a writer. I think reading and writing help us endure. They offer us companionship in the everyday experience of living with loss. It helps us weave joy and loss and fear and hope into the tapestry of our lives. In this piece, I'm not saying that we can write or read our way out of sorrow. But I believe that, it, that it, writing makes what seems unbearable, bearable. It's about living with sorrow, living through sorrow. The first poem I read is set at this time of year, when we move from autumn, from fall into winter. And it's a time when I resist the dying of the light. But I wrote this poem to remind me, and maybe to remind others, of that times of darkness can be very creative times in our lives. When winter comes, remember what the blacksmith knows. Dim light is best at the furnace to see the colours go from red to orange, to yellow, the forging heat that tells the steel is ready to be held in the mouth of the tongs. And it's time to lengthen and narrow with the ring of the hammer on the horn of an anvil, to bend until the forgiving metal has found its form. Then file the burrs, remove sharp edges, smooth the surface, polish with the grinding stone, and see it shine like gold. Uh, in the four years of the writing of this collection, I accompanied both my friend Shirley McClure, who's a, po a poet, and my father, Charlie Clark, through illness to death. Um, writing was part of what sustained me and gave meaning during that time, which was harrowing and also a privilege. And I'd like to read a poem I wrote in memory of Shirley. Swim. In the early days of our friendship, We'd sit in the sun at Lackenweir, teasing out thoughts and feelings like wool we'd washed in the Nore. We picked the fleece apart, loosening briars and dander, fluffing the locks till the fibres, unmatted, were ready to rove. We swam in the river stretching before us from Devil's Bit Mountain to the Barrow Bridge until illness seeped in stealthy as groundwater after a storm. Tonight in St. Vincent's, your sister and I sit by your bed, 
in low light from above your pillowed head. Your body quivers with every breath. Do you know we're beside you? Can you hear us speak of you, sleek as an otter slipping into the river? The blinds are up and the city's twinkling from here to Kipur, where the Liffey rises to the Wimbrel's call, then winds its way through darkness into the shallows of Dublin Bay. Um, there's a wonderful Polish poet who found refuge uh, over on the other side of the States many years ago, uh, who, who's passed away since, uh, Milosh. And I, I want to quote a line of his um, as an introduction to the next poem I want to read. When it hurts, we return to the banks of certain rivers. The river... What surprises me now is not that you're gone, but how I go on without you, as if I'd lost no more than a finger, my hand, still strong, perhaps stronger, can do what it must, like carving your name on a branch from the beach by the suck, Letting the river take you so I can call myself free. Only sometimes, like yesterday or the day before, last night or this morning, the river flows backwards, uphill to my door. <clears throat> um, even though I've said that the collections are, you know, are shaped by and came out of my experience of loss over the last four years, I don't see my poetry as memoir. And that can be hard to explain, but then I came across this quote by Tennessee Williams. And what he said is, my work is emotionally autobiographical. It has no relationship to the actual events of my life, but it reflects the emotional currents of my life. And I, I, I absolutely love that quote. Um, and in the years, again, those last four years, I was also working on this collection, which was responding you know, to the letters, as Andrew said, from a, a young man who went to the First World War when he was 20 and who died a month before the end of the First World War um, in, you know, in the front. Um, but when I was working on it, at that same time, uh, massive numbers of refugees were trying to get into Europe, and Fortress Europe was keeping them out. And it reminded me of the 12 million refugees after World War I. Uh, Belgians, Russians, Armenians, Serbians, all of whom were looking for a home. And this one, this poem is inspired by one of those refugees. Refugee. No one knew how she smuggled a piano wrapped in a blanket all the way from the city. We didn't want trouble. Neighbours said we should burn it. 
But if you saw how she touched it, you'd know why we found a hiding place in a distant shed. Like everyone else, she spent long days in the fields. But come the night, she'd be gone for hours at a time. We didn't ask, didn't want to know. Only sometimes we heard notes carried as if from the heavens by hard frost or on the wind. And the other poem I'm going to read from this collection um, <clears throat> was inspired by, again, the letters between the sister of this man who went to war, who was at home, and they wrote to each other regularly. And I was imagining what it was like for her when his kit was returned. Um, but of course, you know, the emotion that helped me write this was to do with my, my friend's death. You know. So we bring all of those, those emotions that are stirred in other parts of our life into our creative process. Snow began to fall before dawn, blown horizontal in easterly winds from across the hill. By evening, it lies deep in banks and drifts. Hedges become whitewashed walls. Barrels turn into haystacks. The woodpile disappears. I could almost believe that we haven't received your mud-caked kit. Breeches ripped from ankle to hip. Bloodied tunic your helmet slightly dinged, and the watch you won at school. I could almost believe you'll be with us for dinner, having walked in your trench boots all the way home through the snow. I think that why poems matter and why they travel across cultures and across generations is that the poets can touch into the collective unconscious and that by being intensely personal to the poet they write something that is intensely universal and that the more true I can make my poems for me the more true they are for others. And obviously that's because of what we all share as human beings. I mean, that is the marvel of literature. It wouldn't work unless we shared so much. Um, so um, I wanted to read two of the poems in my new collection, which reflect on changes in Irish society recently. And one of those is that, as some people will know, we've had two marvellous referendums in the last number of years, one which gave us marriage equality uh, for uh, gays and lesbians, which was a wonderful day in Ireland, um, and the other which was May 25th, 2018, 
where abortion was legalized in Ireland for the first time. And as you know, we have a very sad history of cruelty against women, and particularly around women's sexuality. So that was a day of significant change. But it was also a very difficult day in Ireland because there are so many different views about this. And I felt that we showed a kind of maturity as a country in the way we dealt with this, recognizing that there were people for whom this referendum was very painful, and at the same time other people being able to say it was a significant step forward. Uh, so this is po po polling station. In the queue up to the door of the schoolhouse, neighbours welcome sunshine after the wettest of wet winters. Spirits lift at the sight of fields drying out, grass thickening, calves thriving, unstoppable growth. There's talk of young ones speeding home to vote, swallows back to the barn. No one asks anyone where they'll place their ex. Every family has stories left like ploughs and harrows among thistles behind the sheds. And, and another poem to reflect on change in contemporary Irish society brings us back a bit. Uh, as you know, in 2016, we had the centenary of 1916 of our formative revolution. Um, but one of the things that over the years when we were in school, lots of us who are here are in school, we never heard about the women who had any role in 1916. And in 2016, that changed. The women's roles were celebrated, brought out into the open. And two of those women were Elizabeth O'Farrell and Julia Grennan, who were in the GPO with, uh, at the time of the fight. And Elizabeth O'Farrell actually brought the, the message of surrender uh, to the British. Um, but they were partners, life partners, and uh, that led to this poem. In Glasnevin, finding the words carved on their plain granite headstone, faithful comrade, lifelong friend, reminds me of my grandmother who used to say there was none of that in her day. I wish I could ask the faithful Julia and Elizabeth, were they grateful for the mercy of sharing a grave? Did they choose those words to save them from shame? Did they have someone to tell that though the words said so much, they didn't say enough? And when they nursed, the rebellions wounded, did they question the cost of a new free state? Um, listening to the wonderful music this morning, um, <clears throat> I'm sure you'll know what I mean when I say that poetry is like music in how it expresses and holds back at the same time. There's something about the communication within the restraint. And, and there's, I, I think poetry and music are so linked. 
and there's a mysterious paradox of while music and poetry make one experience pain and grief more intensely, they also bring solace and consolation. And you know, when the choir were lined up just in front of us at the very end, you know, when they're really close to us, I just found that just so moving and it, it goes right through your body. And that's the hope for a poet, that you'd write a poem that would do that for people. And it doesn't matter in a way, I mean, I couldn't hear the word, I wasn't sure what the words were saying, but it's the words and the music and the rhythm. And I, I, that's how I'd like people to appreciate poetry. You don't have to always understand it, but feel it, let it go through you like music does. Um, and I'm just music and poetry reverberate, making space for the tumult of emotions we have in response to loving and losing. So I'd like to read um, a poem that I chose because of being here today. It's uh, inspired by a line from uh, a book by Seamus Heaney that was published after his death in the Aeneid, book six, and it's where the father and son meet in the afterlife. At last, are you here at last? Half asleep on a mattress beside his bed, I hear his question in the ember light of the wood-burning stove. Do you believe in heaven, Agraw? We've argued God and religion since I was 13. Belief was a wall between us until the day he said, without it, he wouldn't know how to go on. The wall became a hazel hedge, sheltering finches, spiders, bees. Do you believe in heaven, Dad? He answers as if he's been thinking about it all night. All I know is I'm going somewhere. I'll meet the people I love. It's always a risk reading that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Especially after all that music and everything, you know, you're very stirred up and opened up, you know. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, so um, I'm going to read another another poems from that time of looking after our father. We nursed him at home for two months before he died. Um, and just an introduction to these two poems. The act of making a poem is a movement from private feeling and perception into the shared realm of language. So that's where we all share it. Um, and it's a pleasure, poem-making, even when it's what has been shaped as sorrowful. It's like a little secret amongst poets. You know, when my first book came out, this very well-known poet in Ireland, Harry Clifton, wrote to me and said, you know, just remember the joy of the creating. It was like in all the work of going around doing readings, not to lose sight of the joy of the creating. Um, and writing poems of loss and mourning, it's, it's difficult. It requires the poet to be in two places at once, in the despair of loss and in the intense aliveness of creating, of shaping lines and stanzas, of looking for the right word, 
of searching for a metaphor adequate to what one is trying to express. And I presume people here who write music, who bake, who garden, who do woodwork know what I mean. It's any form of creativity. It gives you that sense of, of joy and meaning even when they're very difficult things you're dealing with. Cyprus. Falling in and out of sleep all night, he suddenly struggles to sit up. Will you open the curtains so we'll see the dawn when it comes? He gazes out at the cypress that in his lifetime grew higher than the house. A tree that survived every winter's wind its trunk ridged as a raised bed ready for seed, feathered foliage set to sprout flower balls, exposed roots worn bare as bones, branches touching the ground forming a haven, a tree to sit in, quiet, waiting. I've got you. Through days of morphine and tidbits to tempt his appetite, there's nowhere else to be. I hold his teacup to his lips, wash his face and the hands I rarely touched. During the night, old hurts and worries surface like stones in a well-tilled field. What time is it now, he asks on the hour. He sings to himself and murmurs lines he learned as a child. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. When he asks to get up, I hold his wrists, brace my weight against his. For a moment, he's confused. It's okay, Janie, I've got you. Go on now, you can stand. Okay, so just, just a few more poems. Um, uh, I, I wanted to say, you know, in, in writing this, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, this, what I would do. <laughs> um, I see there's a few people I have crying. My father said I was never happy to had everybody in the room crying. <laughs> and by the way, he'd be so pleased that I'm doing this here today because getting me back to the church was always what he wanted. <laughs> and he'd, he'd gang up with Andrew here and say, and say we, we'll get her back one of the days. <laughs> Um, so I just I wanted to say that for I was thinking about well is sorrow my muse because you know quite a lot of my work has been you know come out of that place but then I was thinking no my muse is love and um, love and uh, I th I think love and making are inseparable and that love is expressed in the making and the making comes out of loving and that love is the essential muse for me the muse that gets the lines moving love for a person a place a way of life a river a tree a weed uh, blue cards 
Winter mornings, he was gone before dawn to fairs in Ballyhonas, Clare Morris, Ballinrobe. He came home with muck on his coat, smelling of shorthorns and Herefords. Sometimes he told us who he'd met, the blind man who knew each of his cows by their lowing, the widow who bargained harder than any dealer. But mostly he sat distracted by prices, cigarette smoke swirling and spiralling to the ceiling. Blue cards spread around the table. Today, when everyone else was away, I wrapped him warm, pushed his wheelchair through the haggard, up the yard to the sheds. The cattle lifted doleful eyes from heaps of silage. Hello, lads, he said. Okay, so just one more poem. I'm going to finish with one more poem, uh, but I'd like to... <coughs> I want to, another quote I came across that I just love from Camus. The function of art is to open the prisons and give voice to the sorrows and joys of it all. Isn't that just gorgeous? Um, and before I read the final poem I'm going to read, uh, I want to thank you all for your listening. I want to thank you all for inviting me here this morning. Um, Another quote I just have to say, there is a line in one of, Elizabeth Bishop is one of my favourite poems ever, wonderful US poet, and her, she has a poem called Sustina, which I would really recommend, a very musical poem. And the, in, there's a line in it, time to plant tears, says the almanac. And I'd like to leave you with that image, that in speaking our sorrow, writing it, reading it, we are being generative. We are preparing the ground for what is to come next. We are planting our tears. And so the, the last poem I'm going to read is um, a story my mother tells, but she told it to me and my father, uh, sitting at the kitchen table, uh, reminding him of it, and uh, the yellow jumper. They weren't married long when she saw it. A turtleneck jumper in Murray's window, yellow as happiness, as the flash on a goldfinch's wings. She imagined him wearing it at the fairs, standing out from all the rest in their greens and greys. Eighteen shillings and sixpence, she paid for it on tick, Threepence a week. For all that he smiled on his birthday, it remained on the back of the bedroom chair. <laughs> One day she fold and packed it in the chest with the spare candles, letters, photographs, and the other questions she didn't ask. She likes to think of him there, among pens of breeding heifers, winglings and hoggets, splendid in yellow.
would like to ask questions. You know, we have a few minutes. We didn't want to leave it too tight for people going on to their service. Yes. I love that you said um, your muse is love. Yeah. I'd love to know. I'd love to know. Uh, when you got the opportunity or the commission to write the poems about the letters yes. between the young man and the sister, yes. How did you did you find your the love into them? What was your did you have immediately? I love these people. I love their their journey, their experience. Or did it? You know, it's you know, it's, yeah, it's a great question because you see, he was a British soldier, and you know the 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 history of British sure. soldiers in Ireland. Yeah. I was very wary of taking it on. I also was very wary of because First World War can be glorified, and this was all around the time of the hundredth anniversary. So I was wary of it. Um, Andrew was one of the people who encouraged me to take it on, um, and I suppose the thing is, they were people. He was beyond, it wasn't that he, you know, he was a person. And their letters were terribly moving. Like, the last letter that he sends back to her, he thanks her for a little bit of Heather that she had put in the letter before that. And that led to one of the poems. So yes, it was actually the love between them that helped get the poems going and that I could empathise. I mean, the thing is, I suppose, you need to be able to empathise as a poet. It's so important. And, and I got little, little things that could help me empathise with them. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Yeah. Yeah, Carrie. Yeah. I was, um, I love what you said about the links between poetry and music. Um, but even before you said that, I was watching you as you're reading, and you're so lyrical in your, in your reading. And sometimes you even move your hands almost like it's a metronome. Yeah. And I just yeah. wonder how conscious you are of adding that rhythm into a poem as you're creating it, or is it just something that happens when you bring the words together? It happens and you're working with it because, like, you know, I can't write a poem with music on in the room because I'm working with the music and I'm, I'm you know, you're talking out loud to yourself all the time. And sometimes, like Izzy, my partner, we'd be in the same room and I'd go into the other room because I need just absolute quiet to hear it. You have to hear it and hear it and hear it. So you are working. I had a wonderful mentor, a, a Welsh poet, coincidentally Gillian Clark, but she was a poet laureate in Wales who's now 84 and still doing readings all over the world, a wonderful woman. But she kept saying to me, it's the music in the lines, Jane, the music, the music. She put music number one and everything else be below that. And that was a great influence for me. I was lucky to have that, you know? Yeah. Any, anybody else? Yeah. How did you decide to move from psychotherapy to poetry? Did you find them very different or are there similarities? Well, you see, that's the thing. I think psychotherapy brought me to poetry because, you see, I only started to write when I was, my first poem was when I was 44, you know? So, like, it wasn't that I was always writing. I think I always wanted to write. I had the dream. But I think there was something about the intense work of the psychotherapy that opened up my creativity. I needed that. I was, you know, wanting to save the world. I was, you know, community worker, adult educator, and that's where I was putting my energy into, you know. And something about the psychotherapy allowed me um, 
get go, go into my internal world to create you know so uh, but then I found I couldn't do both because you see they're both vocations for me you know I don't think I don't think you can be a psychotherapist kind of halfway you know it's a very engrossing work and I couldn't do both so I had to say goodbye to one to get into the other you know but it's funny I'm going back to the the place where I trained in a few weeks time to give a reading with all those psychotherapists with whom I trained so that'll be really interesting and I think I'll be saying something similar to what I'm saying here today about because give sorrow words that's all what psychotherapy about is about really isn't it you know yeah. Paddy oh yeah 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 well I mean all I can say about that is that you know we went to church the equivalent of the Episcopalian church in Ireland all our youth and you know, the King James Bible, the prayers, the Psalms, what you were there today, the words, the rhythms, the music, it is so beautiful. And I know it influenced me deeply as a poet. Uh, so, you know, yeah, so that's it. That's my answer there. Yes, Paddy. You know, just like there's so much intensity in poems. Yeah. So I wonder, how does it like to rework them? When do you know what poem is finished? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that is, that's a, that's a big one. I mean, one of the things is I have a workshop group. There are five poets. We, re, we, work, we meet once a month, and we bring two poems a month. And so I would never know my poem is finished until I bring it there. And, you know, I bring something, and I think it's great, and they, I don't, they don't think it's great. You know, it's, a, it's, it's an ongoing process of disappointment and rejection, just to say. I mean, it's marvellous to be here today, but along the way. And I think that is why lots of people don't bring their work into the open, because it's how do we manage the disappointment and rejections along the way? That is a part of the work of the artist. It's not an easy road that gets the book to here, you know. But anyway, with their help, that's what helps me know it's finished. And sometimes you would look at a poem, like there's a poem in, in the book where I'd be thinking, hmm, I wonder would I take that stanza out now if I was to do it again? So it's an ongoing, an ongoing process. <laughs> Maybe one more question before we, yeah. yeah so you alluded to this, but you yeah. tease that a little bit, the degree to which Ireland's arguably unique tragic history influenced you as an artist and, and other Irish poets. Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting one. I suppose, as a woman, it, 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 if it wasn't for Yvonne Boland, who has worked in, in Stanford, you know, she's, she works in the States a lot, this Irish poet, um, she prepared the way for women poets and allowed us to get our voice. If it wasn't for the work she did 40 years ago, I wouldn't be here today. That's one thing to say about our about our history. I mean, I, I suppose things about, you know, the land and the link with farming and all of that, that's a huge influence on me. Um, I suppose, I mean, uh, how else to say it? I suppose the, you know, the other bit of the Irish artist is often the needing to move away from home to find what it is you want to do. And that was my, my road as well. I had to go away from home and then later on in my life find myself going back and finding the sustenance as an artist there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you. And I think there's one other question there, yes. I hear 
visionary composers out there who are looking to set the magic of your poetry? <laughs> I'd love if there were, but there is one. There is one I know of. There is a wonderful uh, musician in Wicklow who's at the launch of this book recently, and he came up to me at the end and said, would you mind if I said... <laughs> I said, I wouldn't mind at all. So, yeah, so that would be lovely. I would love that. So I'll see what emerges there. But I do perform with two musicians regularly. Uh, one is the saddle whistle. It's, the low, it's like a low flute. And the other is classic guitarist and I perform with them and I love that but anyway we better come to an end now haven't we okay well maybe maybe we'll we'll leave it at that so thank you very much everyone thanks so much